Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stuart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Russian Roulette. On Friday morning in the United States, we all learned the devastating news of Alexei Navalny's death in a Russian prison colony in the country's Arctic north. Joining Marie and I to discuss this major story is Dr. Miriam Lanskoy. Miriam is the Senior Director for Russia and Eurasia at the National Endowment for Democracy, where she helps lead NED's engagement with the broader pro-Soviet space. We are thrilled to have her back again on Russian Roulette to discuss this important topic. Miriam, thanks so much for, for joining us again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. So let me start by just sort of asking, what do we know exactly about Alexei Navalny's death? We know that sort of the day before it was reported that he had died, that he had been seen and seemed to be in good spirits. And I wouldn't say good health, but in as good a health you can be in the circumstances he was being held. But do we know anything about the nature of how he died and what's happened? I don't think we have very much information. They've so far refused to release the body to his family members. His mother and a lawyer flew out to the colony over the weekend. And so far, they're being told that it could take something like 12 or 14 days before the body is released. And there's a huge outcry going on. Over 30,000 people have written at you know, some risk to themselves, to the Russian prison authorities saying that the, the body should be released immediately to the family. May I just jump in here, if that's okay, to just add a little bit of the context. Since yesterday, I was also listening, obviously, to a lot of commentary that appeared associated to Navalny's death. There are certain interesting inconsistencies suggesting that, for example, the murder, I mean, in one way or another, I think we're pretty confident it was a murder, whether intentional, specifically on February 16th or before, because the regime, frankly, did everything possible to make Navalny's health deteriorate, sending him further and further up north, and even, uh, obviously, making him spend a lot of time in this particular jail within a jail in Russia's penitentiary system, which was extremely detrimental for his health and which will be really consequential for even healthy people, not for people who've been poisoned by a nerve agent earlier. But there's interesting inconsistencies in this dynamic that came out. For example, there's some evidence emerging that the murder could have taken place on 15th rather than 16th. It's clear that the um, Russian penitentiary system, the announcement that, for example, they issued has been written in a language that's typical to them, probably with some assistance with FSB. In one way or another, the murder of Navalny could have been preconceived by the system. I'm citing here the work by Olga Romanova, the Russian journalist who also has headed the organization Russia Behind Bars and worked very actively with the Federal Penitentiary Service. That's what she says. Some information about the bruisers associated with Navalny's body that made some analysts suggest that he may have been killed by the use of stun guns. Other commentators, including Krista Grozev, an investigator who investigated the previous attempt at murdering Navalny in um, August 2020, he shows that there are some evidence of convulsions that could have taken place, which would be a symptom of high dosage of organophosphates. It's yet again poisoning. And of course, as Miriam suggested, the, the sheer fact that the Kremlin is hiding the body is certainly indicative of something suspicious that should have taken place. 
Yeah, it seems very little doubt that this is a death caused by the Kremlin and whatever the means that they used in order to kill Navalny, I think, is still under investigation or at least investigation by people outside of Russia. But Miriam, I guess when you heard about Navalny's death, what was your reaction and what did you think that this sort of portend for the future of Russia? Maybe we'll start with a very broad question, and then I'll turn it back to Maria to ask further. Sure. Thanks for that question. You know, obviously, this is very sad. And my first reaction was, you know, we can't prepare ourselves for these things that we know it's possible. And we worry that political prisoners can be killed. But yet it comes as a complete shock. And in one sense, you know, Putin has killed political opponents previous to this. And yet, you know, it's a huge blow. I am asking myself why, why the timing of this, it comes before the Russian presidential election. You wonder if somehow in Putin's mind, Navalny was a threat even sitting in isolation above the Arctic Circle, still is somehow a factor in the elections. I don't know what to connect it to, because as an analyst, what I worry about is a shift from putting people in jail to killing them more systematically. And I worry about the fate of other political prisoners and whether the level of paranoia in the Kremlin is such that they will just start eliminating them. I worry about whether from a targeted authoritarianism, targeting repression, they may go to a mass system of repression. And at this point in Russia, there's a shortage of soldiers for the front. And there's a kind of understanding that after the elections, there might have to be mobilization, which we know would be wildly unpopular, and workers in defense industries. So there's a kind of shortage of forced labor. And putting people in prison, that's a way of generating labor. And that's where the gulag originated back in the 20s and 30s. So those are the kinds of things that I think about and, and worry about. At the same time, the organization itself behind Navalny is very, very strong that Yulia Navalny has spoken out. You know, it's extremely admirable and she could be a very powerful leader. We saw that with Svetlana Tikhanovskaya in Belarus. You know, people didn't expect for her to take off the way she has. I think something similar will happen. Yulia is admired. She is... Just, you know, fantastic kind of presentation and there's kind of gracefulness in her manner and people already admire her. The martyrdom of her husband and the way she holds herself are very powerful. The organization, of course, is used to working without Navalny, unfortunately. So their most famous film, Putin's Palace, was produced while Navalny was sick, while he was poisoned, and then later recuperating. They released it. He was already in jail. So unfortunately, while he's a strategist, a source of inspiration, a front man, you know, he plays all sorts of important roles, but they have functioned without him for much of the last decade. So, you know, I would anticipate that they feel, and you see this on social media, a lot of people saying, we will do more. We feel embarrassed that we didn't do as much as Navalny himself. And this is true, especially of people within Navalny's circles and his organization, the Anti-Corruption Foundation, will carry on. 
There's something to be said here, I think, about the seductive promise of the end of history, which was offered to all of these wannabe democratic regimes uh, in the 1990s and often failed to deliver, right? We see a lot of popular movements, no matter how small, and I think it's important to say that the Russian liberal position constitutes probably 7 to 10% of the Russian society, right? They are offered this ideal vision, but unfortunately, there's little the West currently is able to do to deliver on that promise. It has become obvious over the last uh, 30 years, right? You see a lot of societies struggling desperately to establish democracy, but the actual leverage of the West over the societies has actually become smaller and smaller. And this is something to keep in mind that unfortunately, many brave, courageous people, again, tempted and inspired by this vision of the Hollywood ending of the liberal democracy at the end, unfortunately, do not necessarily succeed. And I'm not necessarily sure whether you can say that the success in the horizon for the liberal opposition today in Russia, it looks like despite all the courage and bravery, the regime, the Putin regime is getting stronger and stronger. All the effort that the emerging nascent Russian civil society has invested into building certain institutions throughout the 2010s, especially following the process of 2011-12, has essentially been dismantled since 2020 quite successfully. And it's very hard at this point to envision a successful vision of the beautiful Russia of the future that Navalny tried to offer. I think sometimes pessimism is warranted, especially to be a little bit more realistic about, you know, about our capabilities. We are failing to even support, as we speak, Ukraine, uh, since the House is not passing additional packages to fund Ukraine uh, militarily, not to even speak of Russia that essentially de facto occupied by the regime and likely to stay in this condition for a while. Miriam, I'm curious for your take on that, but also on what you think Navalny's death then means for the Russian opposition today. I think to Maria's point, it seems now highly unlikely to see a concerted liberal opposition that kind of resembles Navalny and what Navalny was doing inside of Russia. But I'm curious on how you see kind of the Russian opposition to Putin, both outside of Russia, what this means. I think you've already sort of touched on it. But then also, how do you think opposition to the regime will spawn or will it spawn? And what would it look like inside of Russia? So there are a lot of points <laughs> that you made, Maria. So first, I see the kind of liberal or pro-democratic forces in Russia as a lot larger than, I think you said, five or six percent. We can debate this, but I don't know if you look at the kinds of stratifications that Zinc does, and they have regularly more like a third, 25 percent, something like that, as people who are democratically minded as such. I think what has happened is that it's become harder and harder to express these views, the censorship. There are not many opportunities, but you see, for instance, the attempt by independent candidate, uh, you can see the Dunsavaj to register when there were attempts, and then later Nadezhdin, whom no one really saw as such an independent figure, but just an anti-war figure. You could see a lot of genuine enthusiasm among people. The exact proportion of the population, I don't know, but I wouldn't dismiss the idea that there are people in Russia who are democratically minded, who oppose what's going on. We know even in sort of Levada, which has been attacked on a number of different fronts, even I think in Levada, you have more than half the population that wants the war to end. 
So I guess I would not dismiss all of Russian public as being happy with the current state of affairs, Putin supporters and so forth. I think there's actually pretty serious polarization in Russia. And it's just that the whole that is democratic can't express itself. So they're hard to see. As for U.S. support for Ukraine, of course, it's needed. Unfortunately, it's coming slowly and we're sending mixed signals at a time when, again, Putin has to do a difficult thing. They need to run the elections while running the war with 80 percent turnout, 80 percent support, and then do a mobilization. We sitting here assume, oh, he's got this. And then he goes and murders his most serious opponent. Maybe he doesn't have it. Maybe when you see people lining up for Nadezhdin all over the country, maybe he doesn't have it. Maybe we shouldn't give him presence like waffling over Ukraine. Is mobilization going to be an easy thing to do? I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss all of Russian yeah. society. Yeah, it, and I think oh, the point that the West can't force something. No, of course not. And it's not a Hollywood ending. We're not building democracy the way the Soviets built communism. It's a process. It's not an end. And I don't think the West did nearly enough for 20 years. And then it slammed down a lot of measures at the very last minute that have not been very thoroughly enforced. So anyway, so I think it's a nuanced yeah. conversation. No, it, it may also be that maybe Putin is very stable, but then it still can make bad choices. And from just a strategic perspective, you know, if killing Navalny was not out of Putin's concern about his domestic position, but as you know, one theory is that this was perhaps a message to send to the West and to Europe. It happened you know, the morning of the Munich Security Conference, a conference that Putin is well aware of. And to me, that's a big miscalculation, because if anything, I think that kind of has further demonstrated the ruthlessness of the regime. And also, I think has really rekindled a debate here in Washington about the urgent need of supporting Ukraine and has caused, you know, even Trump to have to put out a statement. And I think it's shifted the ground a bit on where we were vis-a-vis -vis Russia in Ukraine in a way that's been helpful for Ukraine. I, maybe that's a Putin miscalculation. I think he may want to send a message to Europe about how strong he is, if Munich was at all on his mind, but that could backfire at the very least. I'll just uh, jump in quickly to say that there are two alternative explanations that are essentially linked to two alternative visions of Russia as to the timing. The timing in the death of Navalny is probably the, um, the most puzzling thing because everybody understood he was going to be murdered. Why now is the question. And to the extent that it was a violent death, exactly. It's either the from the Putin is acting from the position of strength where he does not feel any constraints, be it internal, domestic or external imposed by the West and wants to signal, showcase the strength to the West, to the Munich Security Conference, among other participants, among other things. Uh, just a reminder, right, that back in 2007, this is where Putin most notoriously announced his new vision of the world, what was to become this essentially new Cold War with the West in his Munich Conference speech. An alternative vision would be that Putin is actually weakened domestically. There's a lot of people who don't like the war, Nadezhdin, Boris Nadezhdin's attempt to participate in the Russian elections actually mobilized a lot of anti-war people. And as a result, 
Putin felt triggered and felt the urge to kill Navalny in the wake of the March 2024 presidential election in Russia. And those two different regions that are, that are linked to the vision of Russia's transition more broadly, back to this discussion with Miriam, do we see Putin regime as actually domestically as being strong and facing no resistance? And uh, Russia's modernization, the rise of the liberal opposition, essentially being somewhat a marginal development against the backdrop of historically autocratic Russia? Or do we see Russia as having uh, democratized in early 1990s, then essentially Putin feeling the need to consistently be repressive in order to counter those very powerful democratizing trends in Russia uh, throughout all these 30 years of post-Soviet period. These are two uh, different visions, and depending on which one you pick for yourself, you kind of get to understand the causes that prompted Putin to essentially kill Navalny right now. Miriam? I guess one of the things I really worry about right now are the fates of other political prisoners. And of course, the first one on my mind is Vladimir Karamurza. And we're coming up in April on two years that he's been in jail. And last year at this anniversary, there was a big Hill event and there were upwards of 80 senators and congressmen that signed a letter to the State Department asking for a particular designation that would then enable the State Department to negotiate for Vladimir Karamurza's release. And here we are almost a year later and we're still waiting for that designation to come through for him. And, you know, certainly he would be among people I'm most concerned about. But, you know, I guess some analysts looked at Munich. I looked at the fact that the Russians arrested some German tourists three or four days ago. Putin said to Tucker Carlson that he wants to trade. And there's a high-ranking GRU assassin in jail in Germany. Putin tells Tucker Carlson that I want to trade. They proceed to arrest a German tourist. By the way, today they made public an arrest that happened a few weeks ago of an American citizen, a woman who had dual Russian American citizenship. And I wonder, you know, what exactly is brewing there? And by the way, Lincoln got to, correct me if I'm wrong, either speak with or see Whelan recently. There was some contact with Whelan. So I wonder, and you know, what I wish I'd seen at Munich was a more serious conversation about how can we try to get more people out? And can this be front and center in our international deliberations, as it used to be back, you know, the bad old days are back, and certainly questions of how to negotiate release, and the negotiations were front and center of major international meetings, and they should be again. Yeah. I only imagine that a lot of this is happening behind the scenes. I think that's true with, with Evan Gershkovich. I mean, as we saw last year with the Brittany Griner trade with Victor Boot, I think the dilemma for U.S. policymakers is that they're trading, you know, Russian assassins for a Wall Street Journal reporter or, you know, a women's professional basketball player. Oftentimes not the sort of trades that we were making during the Cold War with exchanging, you know, each other's intelligence assets. But I think that's always going to be a tough State Department calculation. I think in some ways it's difficult because you've incentivized the hostage taking when you do make the trades, but you want to get these people out. I'm curious, though, when we think about what message this then sends the Russian public, hearing about Navalny's death throughout Russia, now recognizing that it wasn't as if Navalny was, you know, automatically going to become the next president and wasn't. But there was, I think, broader recognition of who he was. And I mean, this will 
definitely, I think, cause a chilling effect on potential protests and other things like that and people speaking out. But does this cause a broader concern with maybe your average Russian about the Russian regime murdering and using these harsh methods? Does that change the way Putin is perceived? And I, I guess what I'm saying is that when you start having to kill your opponents, and this isn't the first time, but in a way that's pretty direct, you know, do you think that's going to erode some of the kind of support for the Kremlin for the regime that maybe are already eroding because of this war. The regime has a whole facade of support to persuade people like us that it's really stable and popular. I don't think that that's true to begin with. My worry and what I think maybe more and more people are worrying about now is that it's not just a question of politics. It's not just if you stay out of politics, you'll be safe is that this regime can cross into really mass terror. And how far are we from that? And in a way, them killing Navalny is scary. And so obviously, it brings attention, it brings a reaction. But they're putting people away every day. Who is this young woman who was arrested in Yucatan board today? And really long sentences for people. So in the case of this young woman, she apparently, what did she do wrong? She gave $50 to uh, Razum for Ukraine, and she criticized Tucker Carlson's interview of Putin online. And for that, she's facing treason charges. What is so scary right now that I think Russians, it's one thing to think about it and be afraid of it. Another thing is to figure out how to act. And that's what Navalny's organization, this Foundation Against Corruption, has always been good at, is sort of translating not just the analysis of corruption and kleptocracy that they were good at capturing, presenting, and showing people, but translating it into political action. Look, I think people are scared that the system can become completely arbitrary, and therefore there's no way of protecting yourself. And how to organize against that is a much more deep and complicated problem for people. And when faced with that, that becomes this kind of denial that people go into that, you know, you can see what's going on, but you don't know what to do about it or how to act. You know, um, so you deny it's happening. Yeah. To up on your points, using some statistical evidence, even before Putin coming to power, this is often forgotten, actually, that Russian political leaders in power don't lose power even when they lose uh, wars. And the example here is not Putin. The example here is Yeltsin's, uh, actually, war in 1994 in Chechnya, which he de facto lost, but he did not lose power despite that. And that was happening under technically very liberal, really by historical terms, regime in Russia. Even under fairly liberal times, the, the society just lacked the mobilizing capacity to organize. Now, fast forward the last 30 years, right, or 25 years of Putin's rule, this capacity was completely destroyed by the regime. It to that, the fact that the society is brainwashed uh, very actively. We published a report about how that is now, has gone way beyond just the propagandist media, but also at the institutional level, it's all sorts of um, educational institutions and whatnot. And the general popularity of Navalny has significantly decreased. Uh, Levada Center that keeps measuring, asking about Navalny in the surveys, shows that at the peak of his popularity, or at least his recognition when he got back to Russia in 2021, his uh, popularity was at 3%. 
Now his rating went down to 1%. So, I mean, it's uh, given the circumstances and again, lack of reliability to Russian pools, it's actually quite an admirable achievement, uh, but it certainly falls beyond being able to influence some radical change in the Russian society. Krista Blosev, who worked very closely, obviously, worked very closely with Navalny's team, says that they did get an avalanche of responses from Russian oligarchs saying, oh my God, this is the red line now. This is not, now we're going to do something about it. But uh, hey, that's exactly what we had in early 2022 when the war started, right? What can be a bigger, most consequential and dramatic action on the side of the Russian authorities than starting the largest war in Europe after Hitler, completely unprovoked, totally unjustified and facing full isolation from the West? And again, there was an avalanche of emails and messages coming from the Russian uh, rich people saying, this is, this is it. Now we're going to act. We are not going to tolerate this anymore. Fast forward two years, we see that most successfully adjusted. Some have left the regime. Nobody really dared to challenge the Kremlin, with possible exception of Prigozhin, who is probably not <laughs> on top of Russia in the first place. So as much as I'd love to see this really martyrdom, completely courageous and marvelous action on Navalny to have some fundamental consequences in the long term. I don't really see that happening anytime soon because of that harsh reality. But I will add one thing. Navalny definitely, his actions and his behavior in prison was completely uplifting and uh, admirable. And he was able to somehow inspire people who found themselves actually much less harsh conditions than Navalny was kept in. And this is the type of person, type of image inspiration that the Russian society lacked over the last 30 years. There wasn't really somebody to serve as an example as this, you know, the Lancelot type of person person who just fights against the dragon and demonstrate for his personal experience, example, certain levels of courage really unachievable for ordinary citizens. So Navalny offered that, and at least as a legend, you know, as a martyr, he will live in memory, hopefully influencing future generations even if I'm not too hopeful about the current one. We have just a few minutes left, but I have a couple more questions, Miriam. So one, I guess, is one question is, what can the West do? Is there anything the West can do? It seems like we've essentially used the sanctions tools that we have, but are there things that you think that the West or the United States should do in response to Navalny's death? I actually wanted to also mention some other prisoners. So in terms of kind of articulating very clearly some basic values and having a positive outlook. So it wasn't only Navalny, that's the Lancelot in this vein. So does Yashin, so does Pivavarov, so does Vladimir Karamurza. They all very clearly stand for hope that something better is possible. And I really am very concerned for them. I think the conversation about political prisoners needs to become much more central. It's not, it shouldn't be just a private uh, back channel thing that's going on between governments. We used to have much more active campaigning in this country on behalf of political prisoners. And I want to mention actually also some prisoners in Azerbaijan where Gubadi Badoglu is fighting for his life and is very ill, and he's similar to Navalny, somebody who uncovered regime corruption. There's also in Azerbaijan, so, you know, Aliyev was just at Munich. Did anyone ask him about the political prisoners? That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. That's what I would like to see, is that you can't show up at Munich <laughs> and not be asked, how is the health of Gubadi Badoglu? 
when will he be allowed to go to a hospital rather than be in a prison? There's another case in Azerbaijan. There were six Azeri journalists from a publication called Absats. That's also an anti-corruption outlet. And there was a young woman who was the head editor who flew back. So she saw her colleagues and behaved very much like Navalny did. She flew back to her country because she saw her colleagues were being arrested, and she was arrested herself at the airport. So there are any number of cases like this. And one of the things that I take away from this killing is that we have to try to prevent more such deaths in prison. And is it futile? I mean, there's always a contest between good and bad. And who wins at the end? I'm not sure there's ever an end, but it's up to us to keep trying. I think that's a great point that there's also sort of a demonstration effect here that if Putin can end the lives of his political opponents, then perhaps others and other regimes around the world will look at that and see if there aren't consequences, if the West isn't raising the issues of political prisoners, that you're not providing any sort of deterrent to others to emulate that. And I think that's a great point. I think Navalny's death really highlights the need for the fate of political prisoners to be higher up on the agenda. And I thank you, Miriam, for the work that you're doing on that and for coming on Russian Roulette today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the conversation and it's good to be with you. Great. So unfortunately, we're going to have to end things there. A massive thanks to Miriam for coming on the podcast today. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you haven't already yet, please be sure to subscribe to Russian Roulette and also give us a big five-star rating. You should also check out our sister podcast, The Eurofile, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you and see you next time. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at csis.org.